Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded of you, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you. Um, before I pray for us, I just want to have another quick announcement. Uh, if you were outside, you might have noticed these tiny little booklets that are out there. Um, this little book is called A Very Different Christmas. What are you hoping for this year? Uh, these books were ordered. Uh, for anyone to take, uh, they're free, uh, specifically for those of you who may have non-Christian friends or family members uh, who are considering the claims of Jesus or if you want to be able to share a little bit about the true meaning of Christmas. Uh, we wanted to have these books available for you to just give away to those whom you believe might uh, be benefited by something like this. And maybe even as a conversation starter for you to talk more about your faith, talk more about Jesus and Christmas, and maybe even invite them to our Christmas Eve service. You know, surveys tell us that non-Christians are really open to coming to church two times a year if they ever are open, and that is Easter Sunday, Good Friday weekend, uh, as well as Christmas Eve or Christmas Day service. And so if you know someone who is considering a spirituality or open to church or open to the gospel, um, maybe you might give this to them. Um, it's free of charge. And maybe even invite them to our Christmas Eve service where they'll get a chance to hear uh, from, from the Bible itself about the true story of Christmas. Okay? So just a little, um, just a little uh, advertisement here for those of you who want to pick up a copy or a couple copies. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your continued mercies, how week in and week out you faithfully summon your people to come and to be in your presence and to be encouraged and empowered and equipped by your word. Lord, is there a God like you? No, because not only are you the true and only God, you're the only God who is so good and so gracious and so merciful. Lord, not even the vain imaginings of man could ever emulate or come close into understanding or creating such a beautiful divine being as yourself. And so, Lord, we come at your feet asking for you to speak to your people once again. We ask that you would bless this message in spite of its messenger. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, folks, well, this is the first Sunday of December, which means we're now beginning today our annual Advent Sermon Series or our annual Christmas Sermon Series. And this year's Advent Series is entitled with a question, Why Joy? Why joy? And the reason why I entitled this series in the form of a question of why joy is because every year during this time of year, we're always told through song and through messages and commercials that we're to be joyful during Christmas. You guys know the song, Joy to the World, for the Lord has come. Maybe you heard that on the radio. Maybe you heard it in the mall as you're doing your Christmas shopping. Over and over, we're told that we are to be so joyful during Christmas. And my question is, why? What is it about Christmas to which we are to be so joyful about? What is it about the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago in an obscure little town in the Middle East known as Bethlehem to which it would evoke in us such splendid joy? Why are we supposed to be so joyful about Christmas? Well, for the next three Sundays, I hope to be able to answer that question. And today, we're going to take a look at the very beginning of not only the Bible, but of human history itself in Genesis chapter 3, because when we do, we are going to see one very prominent, one very major reason why we are to be so joyful. And it all centers on this idea of Jesus coming to making the problems of the world go away. The, one of the big reasons why we should be joyful about Christmas and the arrival of Christ is that he makes the problems go away. So with that in mind, three things I would like to share with you this afternoon First, I want to talk about the abiding problems of humanity, the abiding problems, the ongoing problems, the never-ending problems of humanity. Then I want to talk about why the problems of humanity never go away. And finally, I want to end it with the one who makes the problems go away, okay? The abiding problems of humanity, why the problems of humanity don't go away, and finally, the one who does make the problems go away. All right, let's jump right in. First, the abiding problems of humanity. Back in 2011... The European Union, the EU, uh, did their annual survey, which they called the Eurobarometer. And that year, they asked a very interesting question for the people who partook in the survey. And that question is, what nine problems do you think are the worst problems today? What do you think, Europe, are the nine worst problems going on in the world today? And this is the result that they got, and this is in no particular order. First, they talk about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Second, Armed conflict, particularly in areas of the Middle East and Eastern Europe. Number three, the spread of infectious disease. Number four, global overpopulation crisis. Number five, lack of available energy. Number six, international terrorism. Number seven, global economic crisis. Number eight, climate change. Number nine, increasing poverty with a growing lack of drinking water. Now... If I had not told you that this survey was done in 2011, many of you probably would have assumed that this was a recent survey like this year, a 2015 survey, because all of these problems that were just listed up here are still with us and they're still with us. It doesn't seem like they're ever going away. And indeed, I firmly believe that these problems or problems that are similar to this, that fall within the same kind of category, will be with us for many years, whether it be for five years, ten years, you know, multiple decades, maybe centuries, maybe even millennia. It seems pretty clear that the problems that we have been plagued with for the past five years are going to be with us for a long, long time. Now, you're probably thinking, Pastor John, that's a pretty bold statement. How can you say that some of these problems are going to be around, like, for much longer. I mean, we are getting better technology, you know, civilizations are advancing. How can you say that these problems that seem to be lingering are going to be lingering for that long? 
Well, the reason why I say that is because these problems have been around since the beginning of human history. Now you're thinking, human history? We didn't have nuclear weapons in the beginning of human history. Well, let me explain what I mean. Uh, If you look more carefully at this list of problems that the Eurobarometer tells us, you'll see that they all have one common idea, okay? One common idea, and that is what? Hostility. Hostility. It's either social hostility, like proliferation of nuclear weapons or armed conflict, or it's what I call material hostility, like infectious disease, climate change, and economic crisis. In other words, this list tells us that mankind has two main categorical problems facing them right now and has been around for a long time. And that is problems with other people, social hostility, and problems with the material world. Okay, the physical world, or what I call material hostility. And here's what's so interesting. If you carefully read our passage, Genesis chapter 3, you see these same two categorical problems in our text as well. But before I kind of show it to you, let me give you a little bit of background information of what's going on in our passage so that you can have a better grasp of what the story is here, okay? This is the story of the beginning. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 tell us the beginning of human history. And here's the background. God just created the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, after creating everything else within a span of five days. He commissioned them to love one another. Why? So they can create families, so they can create cities, cultures, civilizations, and nations. Okay? That is what he did. And he put them in a place, a paradise location called Eden, so that they would have the most optimal opportunities to make all these things happen. And one of the things that God provided for them in Eden are tons and tons, maybe millions upon millions of various kinds of trees with all these succulent fruit that would nourish them, sustain them, and give them a a heart of joy and thanksgiving. However, as a sign of their devotion and their loyalty and obedience to God as their king, he did say there was one particular tree where he said, guys, you can eat anywhere and enjoy. You can just eat as much as you want. However, To show your loyalty, to show your devotion, to show your love to me, and to show your obedience to me, there's one tree I just do not want you to eat from, right? And that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Guess what happened? (laughs) Whenever, like, your parents tell you, look, you can do whatever you want, just don't do this. What's the first thing you want to do, right? You want to do the very thing they don't tell you to do. Later on in the story, the devil, Satan, comes in the form of a snake, a serpent. And he approaches Adam and Eve and he entices them to disobey. He tempts them to disobey and to sin against God by giving them a promise that is so delusional and yet so irresistible. What is this promise that he dangled before Adam and Eve? Do you guys know? Genesis 3 verse 5. It reads this. This is Satan talking to the couple. When you eat from it, the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened. And what does he say? And you will be like God. Adam and Eve tragically sinned against God and they forfeited their original righteousness and their original innocence. And not only for them, but all their descendants, which includes you and I and every other person that ever walks and will walk on this earth. Why? Because they were discontent. They could not be satisfied with the idea that they were mankind, that they were human. No, they had to be something more. They wanted to be upgraded. They wanted to be God. 
They wanted to be the king of kings and lord of lords. And it's right after this incident that our text comes in where God comes and he confronts Adam for his disobedience. We're starting off in verse 11. God says this to Adam. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man, Adam, said, it was the woman whom you gave to be with me. She's the one who gave me the fruit. And that's why I ate. (laughs) What's going on here? All the husbands are like, oh, no. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. You see a husband throwing his wife under the bus so he can save his own skin. And mind you, this is the same woman whom earlier Adam said, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The guy was crazy, head over heels over Eve. And yet, when the moment came when God confronted him of his sin, he had no problems of just kind of using Eve as a human shield right, to cover his own skin, right. He's like, I love you. Wait a minute, what, you know. Adam completely betrayed his duty to protect and to love his wife because he was unwilling to face the consequences of his sin. Now, think about this for a moment. If Adam was willing to do this to his own wife, the love of his life, the bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh in his own words, What would he be willing to do to someone he didn't know as well? What would he be willing to do to someone that he didn't love as much? You see, Genesis chapter 3 shows us that the problem of social hostility due to our rebellious sinful nature is so bad that not even the person we love the most in this world is safe. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that anyone and everyone is fair game in terms of who you and I could be in potential conflict with. It could even be the love of your life. It can even be your own child. It could be your own parents. That's how bad sin has done to us to where we're even willing to treat our best friend as our worst enemy for our own sake. But you know what? That's not all because listen again to what God says to Adam in response to Adam's excuse, his lame excuse. Starting in verse 17, he says this, Uh, And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here God informs Adam that in light of his disobedience, not only is his social relationships broken and dysfunctional, but now his relationship to the material world is now dysfunctional. It is now hostile. You see, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us that when God initially created the world and he created mankind, he intended for mankind's relationship to the physical world to be of such harmony, to be of such productivity, to be of such a collaborative spirit To where when man would interact with the physical world, the physical world would basically serve mankind. To where everything that mankind needed, the world would generously give. And there would be enough for everyone on the planet. There would be no limited resources. There would be no natural disasters. And as a result, there would be no perversion of interacting with the world that would cause disease and poverty. And because those problems wouldn't happen, other problems that come as a result of it, like war and terrorism, would never occur as well. 
And yet, it was because of Adam's disobedience against God that all of that planning, all of that initial original design between man's relationship to the created world is no longer there. What was meant to be productive and flourishing is now fueled with frustration and pain and sweat and toil that results in difficult tragedies. Tim Keller over at Redeemer in New York City says this about this passage. Only with the greatest effort does man learn to get along with the physical world. And even though he may eke out an existence, the earth itself will eventually win. For to it we will return. We will fight the dirt all of our lives. And in the end, we will be six feet under it. Interesting. Now, putting all this together, what does this tell us? It tells us that what I said a moment ago is true. All of the problems that we face in the world categorized as both social hostility, hostility that we have with other people, and material hostility, hostility that we have with the created world that causes economic problems, limited resource problems, poverty, and so forth, and war and terrorism, is all because of sin. And it's been around since the beginning of sin, which was the beginning of human history. You know what this tells us? It tells us that the problems of humanity are not going away. Right? Even in spite of all the development, even in spite of all the advancement that we have in technology and medicine and education, it's not going away. In fact, it's actually getting worse. Here's the question. Why isn't it going away? In spite of all the amazing discoveries, in spite of all the amazing advancements that we've had, why is it that the problems of the world just seem to stubbornly stick around? The answer leads me to my next point. Why the problems of humanity don't go away. Let's read again verses 8 through 11. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the stories of the Bible and you're investigating Christianity and you're not very familiar with the Adam and Eve story, you're probably wondering, well, what's with all this naked business here? You know, why, why is there such this emphasis and focus on nakedness? I mean, first of all, why would God create Adam and Eve naked? And if he did, why did he keep them naked? And why does it sound like that he's kind of, you know, annoyed that they know they're naked as if he wants them to stay Naked, You know, it just sounds a little disturbing, sounds a little creepy. But if you actually studied the text and you think about what it's saying, you'll realize that it has something very profound to tell us. It has nothing to do with sex. It has nothing to do with anything perverse uh, in terms of sexuality whatsoever. So let me explain what's going on. If you want to know what a person is truly capable of in their bare essence, if you want to know what a man is really made of, the best way to know that is to see what they're capable of doing when they're naked. Let me say that again. If you want to know the bare essence of what a person is capable of doing, if you want to know what a person is really made of, the best way to determine that is when they're naked. Let me give you an example. Think about Superman, for example. Superman is like a god, right? He has godlike powers, like laser beams right out of his eyes. He can shoot arctic winds out of his mouth if he wants to, you know, blow out a fire or something. He can... You know, faster than a speeding bullet, he can turn the earth's rotation around, turning back time. I mean, the guy has, like, godlike powers. And let's say one day he's battling Lex Luthor, and um, that's how you say it, Lex Luthor, not Luther. And, um, and, and let's say 
Luthor throws a beam at him, right? And it completely disintegrates Superman's costume. And now he's completely buck naked, right? Didn't harm Superman, but it harmed his suit. And now Superman's completely buck naked. Is Superman any less super than he was when he had his costume? No, he's still Superman, right? Because he's not a mere man. He's a non-human with God-like powers. That is intrinsic to who he is in his being. He is capable of keep fighting fearlessly against his enemies because his nakedness reveals the bare essence of what he's capable of, who he is, and what he can do. But let's think of another superhero. Let's think of Iron Man, Tony Stark. Iron Man is pretty godlike in his powers too. Super fast, laser beams out of his hands, his feet, his chest, right? Flies around in the air. And let's say he's battling one of his villainous uh, people, right? I don't know who Iron Man's villain is lately. But let's say he's battling somebody. And then this villain sometimes somehow gets this death beam that's able to disintegrate Iron Man's suit. And now Tony Stark is completely buck naked. Is Tony Stark going to be as fearless as he was when he had his suit on? Not if he's smart, (laughs) you know. He's not going to continue battling like Superman was because his nakedness reveals what? That in his bare essence, he's weak. In his bare essence, he's merely a man. That he's not God. In spite of what his powers with the suit seem to convey. The bare essence of what Tony Stark, what Iron Man is capable of being, is revealed the most in his nakedness. Now, with that all in mind, let's go back to the story of Adam and Eve and the account of Satan coming in and tempting Adam and Eve that eventually led to their downfall. We didn't read it uh, in full, so let's read it now. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7 says this. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. Listen to what he says. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. Here is Satan telling a group of humans saying, hey, you can be more than human. You can be God. You can have God-like powers, which in this case is what? You can know the difference between good and evil. You can have divine wisdom. And when they buy into this lie, they commit the sin. What happens immediately after? It says in the text, they immediately realize that they were naked. Now, let me ask you an honest question. Do you honestly think that prior to this incident, Adam and Eve were not aware, they were not cognizant, that they didn't apprehend of the fact that they were naked? Do you honestly think that they weren't aware that they were naked? Of course they knew they were naked. They knew way before Satan came that they were naked. So what does the text mean here in verse 7 that once they ate it, their eyes were open, they realized they were not naked? What is it, what is it saying? Here's what it's saying. It means they realized they weren't God. That's what their focus on their nakedness revealed. Let me say that again. Their nakedness revealed that they were not God. In other words, their realization of their nakedness was the realization of how weak they really are, the puniness of their humanity, okay? 
That is what the nakedness, it's, it's the same recognition that Tony Stark would have once he realizes he's completely bugged naked. He knows that in his core being, he is not what he thought he could be. He is not God. Adam and Eve knew they were not God. And in fact, this puniness of their humanity is highlighted in verse 8. Look again at what it says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see that phrase, cool of the day, in verse 8? When many people read that, they think, oh, this is a very pleasant description of how calm and serene the Garden of Eden was. It's a very pleasant moment. Cool of the day. Yeah, we like the cool of the day. Let me ask you something. Guess, what do you think a temperature would be at a cool of the day? Afternoon. 61, 60 degrees. You know, a hot summer day in the shade, cool of the day. Right? 60 degrees. Do you think 60 degrees feels good if you're buck naked? Hmm? Do you think a nice cool breeze? Yes, on a hot day, 98 degrees, which probably wasn't what the Garden of Eden was. Right? But even if you go out without a shirt in the morning, you know, in the summertime, which is like 60 degrees, it's freezing. Right? This cool of the day statement is not a statement of how calm and serene. It was when God approached Adam and Eve. No, this is a statement of God coming in judgment. Listen to what one biblical scholar says about this. Quote, Akkadian terminology, Akkadian is a language very similar to Hebrew. Akkadian terminology has demonstrated that the word translated day also has the meaning storm. This meaning can also be seen also for the Hebrew word in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 2. It is often connected to the deity, to the God, coming in a storm of judgment. If this is correct in its rendering of the word in this passage, Genesis 3, that means Adam and Eve heard the thunder of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm. God is coming to Adam and Eve in a way that is going to make their nakedness so obvious. You know, when it's cold... Right, and you happen to be naked, you're going to realize you're naked. Right, you're going to realize even when it's cold outside, you're going to realize you don't have enough clothing on. God is approaching Adam and Eve in a manner that is going to shove their nakedness, which remember represents what their puny weakness as men and women, right in their faces, right in their faces. Now you might be wondering, okay, this is all interesting stuff, very interesting biblical theological research, but what does any of this have to do? with what you said in the first point about why the problems of the world aren't going away. Well, let me show you. In verse 10, it says this. This is Adam talking to God. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, many people, when they read this verse, feel sorry for Adam. Like, oh, my gosh, he's like a scared little puppy running away from his cruel, tyrant, abusive master. No. That's not how you should be interpreting that verse. That verse tells us right here and there why the problems of the world are not going away. Think about it. When we read this verse, we think, oh, we feel sorry for Adam because he's being confronted with a scary God, right? He's a victim. But let me ask you, why is Adam hiding? Some of you might say, oh, he's hiding from God. He's scared of God. He's he's a poor little puppy. Is that what the text says? Read carefully. Does it say, or does Adam say to God, you know, I was afraid because you were coming in judgment. I was afraid because you were going to condemn me. What does it say? I was afraid because why? I was naked. I was naked. Adam was afraid because he was exposed 
to be nothing more than a mere puny human being. And what does he do? He hides it. He hides it. He hides the evidence that's right in his face that says, you are nothing but a man. And he denies it by hiding it from God and hiding it from himself. You see, this hiding of Adam is not some, you know, poor situation where a guy who's so vulnerable doesn't want to get destroyed. Hiding is Adam's continued rebellion against God. By hiding his nakedness from God, what is he essentially saying to God? He said, you know what, God? I refuse to accept what my nakedness says about me. I refuse to accept what your cold day arrival says about me. I refuse to accept that I'm merely a puny human being. I refuse to accept that I am not God. That's what's going on here. And this, my friends, is why the problems of this world are not going away. Because every generation that has come after Adam and Eve, including this present generation, has constantly refused to accept that they are not the king of kings and lord of lords. Question. What happens when you live in a world where it's filled with people who cannot accept that they are not God? In other words, what happens when you live in a world where everyone thinks they should be treated as if they're the most important person in the universe? where their needs go ahead of everyone else's needs, where their desires should be like law for everyone else to follow. I'll tell you what kind of world you have. You have a world filled with nuclear proliferation. You have a world filled with terrorism. You have a world filled with violence. You have a world filled with poverty. You have a world filled with racism and anarchy. In other words, you have a world that we live in right now, a world filled with social hostility and material hostility. Pollution, natural disasters, whatever you want to say, it's all because of the stubbornness of the human heart that will never concede that we are nothing more than dust, that we are nothing more than man. This is why the problems of the world will not go away because they are directly due to our unwillingness to agree with what our nakedness says about us, which is we are not God. Instead, we hold on to the delusion that we are the Almighty, and anyone who tries to get in the way of that is ready for war. That's what our text is saying. And the question then becomes, what hope does humanity have of ever being free from the problems of the world? The answer leads me to my final point, the one who makes the problems go away. Let's read verse 14 and 15 of our passage where it says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, or some translation, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These two verses are referred to by biblical scholars as the proto-euangelion, which in Latin simply means the first gospel. The first gospel, Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher, says this about these verses. Quote, this is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of the earth. It was memorable discourse indeed with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. Here in verse 15, God tells us how he's going to make the problems go away. He's going to make it go away by providing an offspring of Eve, an offspring of the woman, or as the King James translation puts it, He's going to provide a seed, a descendant of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. What does that statement mean, to crush the head of the serpent? Well, it means two things. 
Number one, it means the most obvious. This descendant is going to kill Satan. He's going to destroy Satan. When you crush the head of something, it's a death blow, right? No point of survival, no point of recovery. This descendant is somehow going to destroy the one who was responsible for the downfall of humanity that caused the downfall of this world and the problems that we have here and now. But the second thing that crushing of the serpent means is symbolic. By crushing the head, you're crushing the idea, the thoughts, the delusions of the serpent. This seed, this descendant of Eve is somehow, some way, going to destroy the deluded idea that was implanted in the human heart that says, I am more than man, I am capable of being more than man, I can be a god. Somehow this seed of Eve is going to destroy that demonic idea forever and ever to where we as humans no longer worship ourselves, but instead worship the true and living God. Here's the question. Who is this seed? Who is this descendant of Eve? If you read Luke chapter 3... You find the answer almost immediately because there in Luke chapter 3, you read the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And Luke traces all of the ancestors of Jesus and he ends it with the very last ancestor. Who is it? Adam. Adam is the original ancestor of Jesus who is the husband of Eve, which means Jesus is the seed of Eve. Jesus is the one that was prophesied in Genesis He is the offspring who crushes the head of the serpent where he will destroy not only Satan, but he will destroy that demonic idea he planted into Adam and Eve and all of our hearts that we could ever be God. And he's going to turn our hearts away from ourselves and back to him and his father and the spirit to where the true God and the true king of kings and lord of lords will be worshipped. How is he going to do that? Here's where the beautiful story of Christmas comes into play. What is the story of Christmas? Thought about that? What is the real meaning? What is the true story of Christmas? The true story of Christmas is this. God loves us so much. He's so committed in having us that he came to us not in the form of a mighty king surrounded by a posse of celestial armed angels, to conquer us, nor did he come in the form of a charismatic leader to brainwash us and and mess with our emotions to where we follow him like a cult leader. No, Jesus came into this world as a tiny, helpless, naked baby. God came into this world as a tiny, helpless, naked baby. He became naked. Why? Why? Why would God come into this world as a puny, helpless, and naked baby? Because that, does that really make sense to you? Because if you think about it, if you're God, you're coming into the world to reclaim your title, to reclaim your right to be the king of kings and lord of lords over everyone. You're coming into a world that thinks they are the God of, they are the, God of the world, that they're the king of kings and lord of lords. Wouldn't it make sense for you to come in power, in glory, with lightning bolts coming up behind you, you know, and storm clouds? But we saw what happened the first time he did that in Genesis 3, right? You saw Adam's response. It didn't work. So what does God do? He comes in the form that humanity refuses to acknowledge. He comes naked. He comes helpless. He comes weak. Why? The Bible tells us that we 
worship ourselves. That's the big problem of humanity. That's the human condition. And all the problems that we have with each other and with creation is because we're battling out. Life is literally a game of thrones where every relationship, every interaction, every social organization, even the church, it's all about power grabbing, right? And the one who conquers is the one who dominates. That's the one who is treated as divine. And our mindset is, is my kingship, my divinity title is so important to me that I'm willing to destroy precious relationships. I'm willing to destroy this earth in order to establish my reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Pretty dark stuff. God, the true God comes, and what does he do? He forfeits his glory. He forfeits his strength. He forfeits his rights. He forfeits his honor and his title as king of kings and lord of lords. And he's treated, humiliated, disenfranchised, broken, victimized. Why? Because having you was more important than being acknowledged as the king of the world. See, if no one is willing to acknowledge us as king of the world, we're willing to break up that relationship. We're willing to abuse that relationship. We're willing to end the relationship. We're willing to destroy this creation. God does the exact opposite. He's saying, I'm willing to give up all the recognition, all the honor, all the prestige of being God so that through my humiliation that begins in my naked birth and ends with my naked crucifixion on the cross to where I can have a relationship with you. That's the gospel. God was willing to embrace the very nature of that we want to reject. He's willing to embrace nakedness, human nakedness, human weakness that says, I am not God. How ironic. We are so deluded into thinking, no, I am God. I'm a man, but I'm really God. Whereas the true God says, you know, even though I'm really God, I'm willing to appear like I'm nothing more than a mere man. So I could have you. You could have me. We could be restored. And this world could be what it was originally intended to be, a place of flourishing, a place of paradise. Where things like war, terrorism, poverty, racism, gossip, hatred, violence, shootings are no longer there. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of Christmas. That is the reason we are to have joy. Let me ask you this afternoon, NCF, do you have joy? If not, may I contend that perhaps it's because you're so dissatisfied that you live in a world that is not acknowledging you as king of kings and lord of lords. But you know what? That's okay. Because this same world did not acknowledge the true king of kings and lord of lords, but he endured it all so he could have you to where if you have faith in him, if you repent of your sins, if you're willing to see that he's a much better God for you than you could ever be for yourself, you can have joy. A joy that eradicates any hostility, whether it's social hostility or material hostility. My question is, are you willing to embrace it? Are you willing to receive that joy? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Are you ready to receive your king? Let's pray. 
Father, we come to you now asking for your continued grace and mercy as we seek to celebrate this Advent season with the right heart, the right attitude, and the right mind. Most importantly, Lord, we want to celebrate with the right posture towards you. Father, the reality is many of us want to deny what our nakedness testifies about us, that we are mere mortal and we are not God. We are not divine. Lord, help us to be able to embrace who we are because you found it so precious enough to pursue us, to have it, to be part of it, and to have us for eternity. Father, help us to really be content, not because we're weak, but because you are with us and that you are a God who is for us. And to have you in weakness is so much better than to have, not have you in deluded strength. Oh God, would you help us now to embrace the joy of this season so that we would go out and be a blessing and go against the hostility, both social and material, that is everywhere around us. Instead, Lord, let us be people of peace to where there is no hostility within us or around us or to the people that we will meet and influence throughout our lives. Oh God, would you hear this prayer now, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.